0: In this episode, we speak with Alan Klein, HG's head of North America, a partner, and a member of HG's senior leadership team. He leads the firm's activities across the USA and Canada. Alan has a long and impressive track record across leadership, tech investing, and operations, having built the foundation fund within Vista Equity, following hands-on experience as a technology entrepreneur. He was previously senior managing director, fund co-head at Vista. HG has over 400 employees across London, Munich, New York, Paris, and San Francisco, and a current portfolio of around 52 businesses worth approximately $135 billion in aggregate enterprise value. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to follow. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's the delight to be with you.
1: RJ, great to chat with you again as well.
0: So what I think is unique about your background is that you have a combination of both entrepreneurship as well as investing. And that's not always the case. You know, We see a lot of more traditional investors that were brought up through investment banking straight into private equity, and growth equity investing. But what's really interesting is what you experienced as an entrepreneur. Can you tell us about maybe your first entrepreneurial experience? And then we also want to get into a little bit Fandango.
1: Yeah, sure. And you know, it's interesting, we we had a recruiting event today that this came up in terms of like, what does that experience mean for you as an investor? So it's a great place to start. If I look back, you know, the first thing I really got involved in was a business that I helped some other folks start in grad school, originally called MetaNet. It's now called PageDNA. It's a workflow automation software company for a specialty part of commercial printing. And one of my co-founders still runs it today. And so that was a first foray into it during business school and through the summer as well. And what that really did is it brought to life things that are theoretical or in the spreadsheet or in the textbook to life. It was, what is your value proposition going to be? You really better get it figured out, particularly if you're a startup. How are you going to convince someone to focus on what you're doing? Well, you should naturally start with something that's a priority for them And then you learn kind of the difficulties of execution in terms of, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to go wrong. You know, frankly, the importance of balancing, sticking with something long enough to get it done, and then being willing to admit when something's off and you need to pivot. I think in that experience, which, you know, obviously that company's been around now 27 years or so, so it was a very short part of their early history. But what we learned during that process was, was all of those things, right? And so that was probably, number one, the most important thing, because ultimately, as an investor and helping other people build and grow their businesses, you run into those exact same challenges. And so that was number one. Number two, you really learn the empathy for how difficult it is as an entrepreneur in those early years. You can tell these stories and they sound great, but 99.9% of them, the first one, two, three five ten 10 years is, is hard work and sometimes a struggle. And there aren't the the rewards and accolades that go with it to keep you going so you got to find your motivation and so I think the, the substantive learning from that early experience as well as kind of that empathetic education has been invaluable throughout my whole career and if you pick a couple of specifics so one was you know we started the business it was 97 and so it was really the first year of the internet for business and so you know what's going to be your business model and so our view was we wrote some software. We should probably sell some software, and so we, we went out to do that. And the patriarch of the firm, he had run a printing company, so he knew a bunch of printing folks, and made a few introductions. And we went out, and we sold the first one, and that was great. And you're like, oh, this will be easy. And we never sold a second one. And so you had to learn. Was it you know what was it? And really, what it was is the business operations inside of a printing company are pretty bespoke processes, and, they, and it was difficult to see how we were going to kind of do that as a startup meet all their kind of varied process needs. And so we very quickly realized that we got an early false positive on selling software and that we needed to pivot the business model. And so we ended up pivoting twice. Uh, that was the first one and ended up in a, you know, basically pay per order process to help people with front end order processing. Started out at a dollar an order. So, you know, similar to jobs and you know, a little later, figuring out that 99 cents was you know hard to argue with as a song price. And so that was i think an early lesson and then the derivative of that is if your business model is dollar revenue then your cost structure better be 99 cents or less right and so otherwise Mm -hmm. you're never going to have a at scale business so i'd say those are some of the early lessons that that first entrepreneurial experience even with a very small business was super powerful for the rest of my career
0: Mm -hmm. we'll switch over to investing in a little bit you know we'll, we'll dive deep into hg but tell us a little bit about fandango
1: So originally, so after business school, I decided that I, you know, I came from two depression age parents growing up, (laughs) the debt overhang was a lot, I came from kind of modest upbringing. And so the view was, I want to get out from under that debt as fast as possible. And that was in part because of that kind of childhood born upbringing, as well as there wasn't anything I was like wildly like dying the vine for. Passionate. Right. And so if I had had that, I might have said, Hey, let's go do it anyway. And so I ended up going back to Goldman Sachs first. And so the view was if I live like a college kid and like I know in 15 months I can pay off all my debt. So I did that. And then the second thing was look, it was a great group of people I worked with. A really interesting time to be in Silicon Valley and in, in that position. And it allowed me to sit at that intersection of people, capital, and ideas. And I've followed that philosophy for, again, my whole career around, that's a really interesting place. If you have all three of those, really great things can happen. If you have only one, things are quite difficult and good luck. Um, And so the view was if I was there and I could make Goldman work as a career, great, but if not, I would be debt-free relatively quickly and I would get to see this fantastic flow of people and ideas, right? And so that proved to be true. I had a former boss approach me about a few things and i wasn't really ready to kind of move to the investing side and i think the words i use was while i'm young and naive enough i'm gonna go get my hands dirty and do some hard work and eventually i'll go sit in the peanut gallery which in hindsight sounds horribly offensive to what i do today but that was kind of the, the view was i really want to go experientially learn what really gets done and so The business, you know, was a the folks at General Atlantic had previously looked at buying Moi Phone and discovered that the founder of that business hadn't made a lot of friends building a good business. They did, did frankly, great job building that business, but didn't make any friends. And so, when they sold the AOL, the theater chain saw zero dollars. So the view was, could we go in partnership to these same groups whose tickets are really the core of what goes on here, and then build a new company around that? So we we launched a business originally called Theater Entertainment Services, which rolls right off the tongue. And the goal, job one, was let's go start with the consortium of theater chains. And can we get a plurality of these folks that control the ticketing inventory to be our business partners? And if we can do that, then we have a reason to exist with real value. And if not, then let's go all spend our time doing something else. That was inherently very interesting to me because the view of finding your sustainable competitive advantage is your first order of business Sounded like the right way to do it if you have that luxury. So we did. So we spent probably better part of two and a half months flying around the country, trying to convince eight of the 10 largest theater chains to join. We ended up getting six of them to sign up simultaneously on one evening. Minor miracle to be totally frank. And, you know, one of the more fantastic business experiences I've had was just that whole process culminating in that evening. And then we launched the business and then the deal was, you know, help us put the consortium together. And then you get the keys to the Cadillac until we hire an adult CEO. And so they they pitched it a little sexier than that, but that was the deal. And my view was that seems like a pretty good deal. Like, let's go get this figured out. And if we can build this business, what a fantastic opportunity early in my career to do something of that ilk. And then eventually we renamed the business Fandango, a whole other story on that front, but you know, a good start to that part of my early career.
0: It seems like in, in this phase of your career, you were going from one dynamic environment and situation to the next. And so I want to delve a little bit into Vista and your experience there, how you helped grow the firm at that time and kind of everything you experienced, because there must have been a lot of tailwinds pushing the firm and as well as, you know, your career forward. Yeah, that was
1: an interesting time. So after Fandango, I joined Vista, which was another startup, frankly, at the time, there were seven or eight of us and I joined concurrent with our third investment. And so that was really a combination of two things. One, I think a good opportunity to kind of move into an environment that made sense on the investing side. And frankly, the operating environment side was looking fairly challenging and that kind of coming out of 2000, early 01. And so pragmatically finding something that fit me that looked like it had legs for more than a year or felt like a smart move. And so I'd known Robert and, and Brian at the time. For a long time and so was excited to join them and it felt like there was a real opportunity for creation as well as learning kind of the investment side of the business and then similarly i was drawn to the fact that we had a original lp that was a best practices software company and my view was okay this is our angle as new investors to figure out our own sustainable competitive advantage the largely held belief in 2000 2001 was you can't do software buyouts. You can't do technology buyouts because there's the greater mousetrap risk. But what we knew was for these deeply rooted, you know, enterprise, particularly application software businesses, the recurring revenue was extremely predictable, high margin, and really sticky. And so the view was they actually are a perfect <laughs> candidate for the more traditional buyout methodology. And so we had to kind of blaze the trail on that front. And our first handful of deals, you know, frankly, couldn't get alone. The folks that were pretty widely either weren't in business or weren't making these kinds of lending arrangements for these companies. And so that was kind of an early part. And what I liked about what we were doing there is a small group of folks you know, committed to the vision of building an operationally focused private investment firm to be different. And if you did that right, you have a again a right to exist and be different. And so that was a I think a great part of that journey. The first you know handful of years, it was a lot of work. We didn't do tons of deals, and we were very involved in the ones we did, just kind of learning both how to be investors and how to help these companies grow and expand kind of what they're doing. And kind of frankly we we all grew up together figuring
0: that out mm-hmm. and what was the competition? like then in terms of the private equity, growth equity landscape versus what it is today?
1: Yeah, great question. So if you roll back to 2001, generously, I would have said there were five firms doing software buyouts. A couple of those firms would probably say they weren't doing it yet, but maybe five. If you roll forward to 2019, 250 firms did at least one control software buyout. And so in 18 years, you saw a 50 fold increase in competition, which is crazy. And part of that is due to the fact that the early adopters in this market, frankly, were producing really good returns. And so therefore, others followed. And you know, the size and scale of the impact of software globally on business has turned into you know super big, super impactful. And therefore, the flows of capital have gone with it, which has meant the market and those who are attacking it need to evolve and change.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think what's going to be really interesting to our audience is this gap year, and we'll talk about the gotcha. gap year, and then we'll talk about HG, because HG has a phenomenal reputation in the industry globally, in the software industry, I should clarify, and want to talk about your role within the firm. But let's talk about the gap year.
1: Yeah, great question. And you know, one I'm happy to spend hours talking about at the conclusion of, you know, frankly, 20 great years at Vista... I wanted to have an open question of what's next. You know, you rarely get these points in life where you get a clean break. The world is once again open to you to try different things. And maybe not quite as young, but young and naive enough. I wanted to kind of think about a really broad swath of how I spent my second chapter. And so I, I coincidentally at that time I also turned 50. And all these folks gave me different books. So I was given Strength to Strength, Second Mountain, book called Halftime. You know, I read them all, Happiness Curve, Life is Better After 50. You know, there was resonance with all of them, but the one that kind of felt like both resonated and had a plan was the book called Halftime, which was written by a guy named Bob Buford and Lloyd Reed basically put together an institute called Halftime Institute, which helps people with this second half journey. And so I was going to take a year off. I did the halftime program, and it was a fantastic way to spend the year. And it was a light overlay to think about life goals, including what you want to do in your career. And so when I laid out my view of what I wanted, 22 to be. To be honest, I overplanned it. I sat down, I did the, what are the 50 books I'm going to read? And then I stepped back from it a couple of days later. And I said, this is the year off for an insane person. <laughs> we we got to rethink it. So I was like, all right, we need a different point of view. So I basically said, I want three goals. So number one, I want to be present in my daily life, especially with family. Number two, I want dedicated effort around personal and professional introspection. And I did a few things, including the halftime program to help accelerate that. And three, I wanted to have some fun and adventure. And the goal was kind of split your proactive, dedicated time, a third, a third, a third. And then whatever else happens is great. And so during that process, you basically do a lot of reading, meet a lot of people. And the halftime program helped organize writing down what have you enjoyed? What are your pet peeves? Where do you get most of your energy from? And you basically conclude... With two things, you basically have a a roadmap, which is what are the three to six life priorities that are most important to you? What does success look like? How are you gonna measure it? Who's gonna help you get there? And how much time you're gonna to dedicate to it? So pretty simple one page to give yourself accountability for what you want your future life to be. And so you and others can, can keep you honest on that. And then the second thing attached to that is you spend time creating what we refer to as the personal mission statement. And so version 10, which took probably four or five months to really hone in on, was much simpler. And you kind of wanted to be able to fit on a t-shirt where I ended up is I wanted to have a lot of fun helping worthy people be their best selves, right? And so this journey was about deciding that the next chapter really was going to be this people centric leadership centric uh, component. And then you got to figure out like, okay, now how are we going to apply that? What are you going to do? And then my coach asked me four really great questions. He said, first, do you want to leverage past skills and experience or do something fresh? Two, do you want to work on a team or be an individual contributor? Three, do you want one thing or a portfolio of things? And four, do you want to work full-time or part-time? So we went through those first three were super easy. I wanted to leverage past skills and experience. I definitely wanted to be part of a team. And I wanted both. I wanted to have my main thing, and I wanted to have a portfolio. And private equity gives you both. And then the one I did did struggle with was full-time or part-time. And the view was, you know, look, I've had a great gap year. Do you really want to go back to the full treadmill? but it really helped organize my thinking. And as I started talking to folks, kind of recommitting to explore the business environment, it made it super easy to have conversations and figure out what might fit or not. And so to me, having clarity and conviction, which is what I believe this program and process gave me, made that really interesting. And so I spoke to a large number of folks that had an interest in doing different things and then really focused in pretty quickly on four firms that I felt like were really great platforms, could I work through or with them or do I need to go do my own thing? And pretty quickly, HG emerged as the best kind of fit on both fronts. You know, what do they want and need and what do I want to do and how do I want to do it and where that fit is highest is it good for both of us. And that's ultimately kind of the, the behind the scenes and that gap year what we did. In addition, I did do a probably every six, eight weeks, took a great trip. So we went either with one of the kids, I went to surf camp in Costa Rica with my oldest daughter and I didn't die and she learned to surf really well. And then I took a backpacking trip with my old partner, Rob Rogers. And we, at the end of family trip, and we went to Kyrgyzstan, which was awesome. Some of the prettiest mountains you've never heard of before. And then second day of the backpacking trip, I got COVID. So I got a bonus nine days in Kyrgyzstan on the back end, but story for another time. And that was effectively how I spent the year. And so I would say I took the time off to kind of reset, frankly, as a human. And I moved from a state of productivity to a state of observation, which I can describe in hindsight, but at the time, I probably wouldn't have been able to put those words to it. And it really allowed me to kind of reset and say, hey, in this next chapter, what do I want to get out of the next? 20 to 30 years of my life? And what am I going to do next so that that is there?" And then it was super clarifying as I engaged with HG to figure out what we wanted to do. And that that kind of brought me to where we are here today.
0: Yes, it's super interesting. I think there's a lot of people that get to this point in their professional life where they desire to take the step back to really figure things out so they can have more energy and a renewed approach to the second half of their working life. And so I imagine now, sitting at HG in the position you're at, you're able to be multiple times more effective than had you gone kind of straight in. So tell us about your role at HG and, and what you're most focused on.
1: Absolutely, so a couple things. So HG, you know, for those who don't know us, is, is a very well-respected transatlantic software investor, been doing this for a few decades. About 65 billion in AUM over the years, invested in a little over 200 platforms with 50 current companies. And you know the worldwide headcounts order of magnitude around 400 people, about 20% of that is here in the States. And you know, as a group, the portfolio is about 130 billion in EV with 100,000, I think north of 100,000 employees and generally growing on average a little over 20%. So a pretty interesting portfolio. Now what we do here at HG is we've got three different funds, you know small, medium, large Mercury, Genesis, and Saturn, that allow us to cover a pretty broad waterfront. So we will invest in companies generally as small as call it you know 30 million in revenue plus or minus, and then up to companies with you know several hundred million of revenue as well, depending on you know the needs of those businesses and whatnot. The vast majority of what we do is software, some software enabled services, And a couple other little things occasionally but that's the the software focus is definitely the the highest area of concentration and my role is as head of north america is to do you know really a few things and so i'd say in the long run it's probably i probably describe it best how i intend to spend my time kind of in the long run which is i'd like to spend about 60 percent of my time on things that are investment team facing so it's helping identify and meet new companies, which is always super exciting, help us figure out how to make those investments and then helping others as we work through adding value as a board member and a resource for those investments over time. So I'd love to spend about 60% of my time there. About 20% of my time, I'd like to devote to what we're doing around a leadership-centric engagement model, which is largely how HG operates today, but it's a recommitment to, I think, crystallizing some of that so that we can really empower CEOs to be the leaders and runners of their businesses and support that with an executive chair program and then resources from our value creation team on an as-needed basis to support them where appropriate. And so I'd like to spend about 20% of my time helping the folks that manage that kind of advance that to where where I think, you know, the next generation of portfolio support should be done and designed. And then finally, I would like to spend about 20% of my time on broader firm leadership and managerial responsibilities. And so, you know, as a growing transatlantic business, having a voice on how we're seeing things in North America is really important even to our European business operations and frankly it's a lot of fun. It's a really good group of people. When you're picking these things you know half the equation that's probably the more important half frankly is culture values and people and i think that's been an outstanding fit from day one and it's you know been here just short of a year and it's it's been fantastic and the second is fit for function right and so what what do we need and so what was needed i believe was a good fit which is i think when nick and matthew and i were talking about it they're like look we'd like a business builder that really understands software investing and when you take that and marry it with my view of wanting to have a lot of fun, helping worthy people be their best selves, those actually match up actually quite well. And so in the long run, what I'd love to do is help my team and the companies we invest in really figure out how they're going to be their best selves and whatever version is that fits them in their lives, and then work through others to make that happen. And so that's what we're doing. Now we're going to do that by, you know, finding and investing in great businesses and helping them be great companies. But you know, I'm going to do it through that kind of leader development, people-centric approach.
0: And what should software CEOs know about HG? You know, frequently the private equity world can be fairly opaque to certain CEOs. They don't understand the differences between certain firms. You know, they hear things through their peers or their colleagues, but they don't really know what it's like to be partnered up with a certain private equity firm. Is there a way that you could help distinguish what would make HG different than the other players in the space? I think it's a
1: great question. I think we can start with something we can cover here. And then the second part is, I do recommend folks just spend time with people. It's, it's an investment as a CEO to meet your possible private equity partners, but it's a business marriage. And so I would invest the time in really getting to know the people and how they think about life and how they think about business so that you can say, hey, does this fit me or not? And trust your gut on that. Like sp- if you spend enough time with people, you'll be able to trust your gut. And so that would be the second part. So the first part of your question is more directly, where are we going to be a good fit? I'd say, you know, for folks that are seeking capital partner, I think there's a few things that I would say where we distinguish ourselves. First, if you're on either side of the pond trying to do business and the other side of the pond and you're a software company, I think we should be your first call. What my European colleagues have built is both impressive and i think extremely difficult to replicate given the large number of cultures and languages and, and whatnot that are super important to effectively doing business over in europe and vice versa having a firm that kind of inside the firm has a, that connectivity on this side of the pond is a, is super valuable so i'd put your know, the number one transatlantic strength being really high on our list of what's important the second in addition to being software focused experts we focus on a cluster model which is effectively the industry specific areas of expertise around the end markets our clients are serving and so we've got eight of those where i think we have good capability and discipline worldwide we've a couple we're kind of working into and they cover you know large areas fintech healthcare technology European payroll, legal regulatory compliance, you know, and a variety of other areas as well. And when you really look in those, you know, what we wanna do is be ourselves proactive to really learn and understand the markets, the dynamics, the value chain, really what's going on and meet a lot of the people that matter. And so I think looking for a firm like an HG that is not just deep in software, but committed to these focused areas, if it aligns with what you're doing, I think that matters a ton these days. And then the third and fourth thing that we're really working on here that I think work hand in hand is third, which is this leadership centric engagement model, which I think is, one, it's largely what HG has been doing. And two, we're just trying to basically crystallize it a little better. And for CEOs that are saying, hey, we really wanna work in an environment where our investors are gonna be dialed into the business model we've gotten and software. So I'm not teaching them that. And they understand our market dynamics and they want to support the development and growth of us as leaders. So, so they, the CEOs, run the business. I think that's quite powerful and unique in terms of folks that do that, coupled with we do have a very good elite value creation team. And so I think that's one where we have invested in the resources to help people get a leg up on very specific things. And now I don't think that group should be you know hundreds of people. I think it should be very focused where we have a unique competitive advantage. And I'll just We've got an excellent, probably world-class, in my opinion, data science and AI team that's been together for a you know, half dozen years, so they're not brand new folks with us. And they are very tuned in to how to help people figure out whether it's the use of data analytics or the more prevalent use of AI these days on their internal operations or how they think about it from a product perspective. I think it's excellent. I think it's a world-class, world-leading resource on that front. But that's the kind of thing i think we want to provide and then you know make that available to our portfolio companies so when you look at those four things i would say those are the ones where we can wildly stand out and differentiate so if you have any interest on either side of the pond great if you are software and in in one of the industry groups in which we focus in i think we become a very natural fit and then someone that says hey look we're a good team we'd love to improve obviously but we want to run the company we're more of a pull model than a push model on that front and do you have some resources? And then the last part is what we started with, which is, you know, do you like the people? I mean, honestly, it's you spend a lot of time together. You you really test the metal of relationships when you run into a stumble or a misquarter or something going wrong. And I think that's where people should meet the folks, check references, and just see how that fits what they want going forward.
0: Excellent. We have two final questions. One is can you tell us about a person who has had a profound impact on you?
1: give you two answers so in the long run it's my mom and so my mom was a stay-at-home mom and then she went up going back to work and education she's a teacher and you know really found great balance and joy with her life you know raising small kids with my dad and then reinventing her career again in a different part of education and whatnot and so that, to me, it was inspiring both halves of that. And over the years, since even a little kid, I've always felt like I get some of my best advice from my mom, whether it's the bullies pick on you at school, hit them back, and they'll stop coming around through, you know, how do you want to spend your time and your resources and life and helping others and whatnot? And so I think she's probably number one. And then number two, I think my coach through halftime has been a you know wildly impactful per unit of time mentor to me over the last kind of two years. And so Lloyd Reeb has been fantastic on that front. And there's a number of other people I'd give a lot of credit to. We, you know, life is a team sport. And so, you know, the list would go long, but that, those are the two I'd highlight.
0: Last question. Can you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about?
1: That's a great question. And it's one of the things we as a family are working on trying to professionalize ourselves internally is... Where do we want to give our time and resources, our time and treasure? And so, you know, a lot of that over the last few years has been directed through the efforts of my wife in things like Helping Hand Home, which is, you know, a local Austin based charity that does some phenomenal work with kids that need the most help. And then another one we've sponsored is related to my old high school. So I went to the North Carolina School of Math and Science, and we helped fund a program in honor of. Dr. Barber around work helping basically women and underrepresented minorities and basically science and math-based education at two points. One was you know kind of the critical time around eighth grade where people start losing interest in it and trying to find ways to help them bridge that gap to when they get to high school and find kind of a greater connectivity with the STEM subjects. And then similarly program for helping people that show up to a school of math and science which recruits from all over north carolina that may need a little bit of a boost in terms of they didn't come from a big city in north carolina and they're maybe behind a class on the math or whatnot and you know helps get them up to speed a bit so it's less daunting because uh, none of it's rocket science it's just you just haven't had the exposure yet so really helping do that it was a program that they had going for six or seven years on a bootstrap. And so we were able to provide a good cornerstone grant that allowed them to raise a ton more money, which they had been unable to do. So those would be two I'd call out. We have a few others, but those are interest of time. I'll leave it at that.
0: Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. Alan, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. It's always a delight to chat with a fellow Oahu. So thank you.
1: Go who's All right, RJ. Appreciate it. Look forward to catching up again soon.